Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. All right, let's pray real quick and we'll get started. Thanks, Father, for this morning, for the opportunity to turn again to your word. The scriptures you've given to us to teach us, to instruct us, to encourage us, but most importantly, to reveal yourself to us. And may we, may we see you in the pages of these scriptures today and learn from you and praise you with the psalmist. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> All right, well, let's remember where we are in the scriptures. We talked a lot last week about where the psalms fit within the, uh, the structure of the, of the scriptures themselves. And let's not miss that fact, right, that the Psalms are in the Scriptures. They're in the Holy Writ that God has given to His people that we may know and we may worship Him. And inside of these Scriptures, uh, we are in the Old Testament, which is distinguished from the New Testament, not merely because of its age, but because of its uh, literary importance as the prologue to the Gospel itself. We talked about studying the Bible as a book of literature last year. And so the Bible, I'm sorry, the Old Testament provides us that lovely prologue into the New Testament that uh, that teaches us what the gospel itself is. And within the Old Testament, going even narrower, we're in the Psalms, which is that category of the Old Testament known as the writings, or as some have called it, the book of truth. Uh, so we're studying that portion of the scripture that provides God's people with very practical wisdom as they live in the land that God promised them that they live later on in the land of exile, and they are awaiting the Messiah, much like we are living in uh, the land of exile, awaiting the return of our Messiah. Uh, Further, we're reading uh, what is sometimes called a poetic commentary on the law of God. The the Psalms are, uh, first and foremost, also in terms of literature, they are poetry. There are different types of poetry that the psalmists employ. They employ, uh, who remembers them from last week? Who wants to get the gold star from the teacher today? What were the three types of psalms we talked about last week, for those of you who were here? Everybody suddenly wasn't here last week. <laughs> Anybody remember? And people like, psalms. Bailey just scratched her head. She's like, oh, no, wait, I wasn't volunteering for anything. Psalms of lament. Lament is one of them. Yeah. So gold star for someone who wasn't even here. That's impressive. <laughs> what? Yeah. Hymns are another one. Hymns, laments, and? Praise. Songs of thanksgiving, which is, uh, you know, we can say songs of praise, whatever you want to be. So, um, uh, you know what, you get uh, 55 points, uh, Christy, for knowing that one. Everybody else gets negative four. Uh, so you're ahead in the, in the game this morning already. So uh, hymns, laments, and songs of thanksgiving, those are the types of uh, poetry, the, the types of songs that the psalmist largely employs. I was reminded as soon as we left here and went to hear uh, Jeff last week that it's not exclusively those three types of poetry that the psalmist use. Just largely they use those three types of hymns because the one I think that psalm that uh, Jeff taught from last Sunday morning was not fitting squarely within any one of those categories. So I didn't mean to make the claim that they're all exclusively hymns, laments, and songs of thanksgiving, but largely that's what the psalmist employ to, to teach us and expound upon the Torah. But thankfully, Psalm 27, which is our focus today, Psalm 27 is a lament, or that type of uh, psalmist poetry that we talked about last week that moves from plea to praise. It's uh, sort of one of these more dark and raw types of psalms that are out there that it often ends in sort of a concrete admonition or a request that God act in some way. Uh, it, It often asks the question why and then answers it according to the character of God as revealed by the law. And I think we're going to see that as we read Psalm 27, which we should do right now. So turn to Psalm 27. 
Let's get this in front of us. We're going to break it down as we go through it, but let's get the whole thing in front of us as we start. Here it is, Psalm 27, verse 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, Seek my face. My heart says to you, Your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger, O you who have been my help. Cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me. They breathe, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. You know, the, the uh, difficulty in, making, in teaching any uh, passage of Scripture is that you're never really going to cover it all. Even as I read through it again and remember what I've written down in my notes, we're not going to even begin to touch what's written in this, this psalm. So I hope that what we talk about this morning serves as a way for you to begin to think through this psalm even more as you meditate upon it, as uh, perhaps David would. i got to tell the story every time I teach this, uh, this lesson. This is not the first time I've taught Psalm 27. But Psalm 27 is a, uh, always makes me remember Virginia Neumeister, or Jenny Neumeister. None of you probably know. Does anybody know Jenny Neumeister by chance? Because I don't want to be, I'm going to tell a story about Jenny. Uh, Jenny uh, grew up, or was in the church I grew up in, and I grew up in a retirement community. So Jenny was advanced in the years. And at one point in her life, Jenny was a very profoundly good singer. But it was not during her retirement years that she was a profoundly great singer. But she offered a song during special music quite often. And I think every time she was asked to sing special music, she sung Psalm 27. And if you've heard that kind of oratory song that she sings, you know, the Lord, I'm not going to do it. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Of whom then shall I fear? You know, that it's a really beautiful, when sung well, piece of music. Um, it is firmly ingrained in my head, and I can't teach this course or this, uh, this psalm without hearing Jenny Neumeister kind of shrill voice in the back of my head as she's singing away up there at the stage of the uh, Village Church at Shell Point in Fort Myers. And I say that as a little bit of a joke, and it, it, it's true. And I was an immature kid listening to Jenny Neumeister, and I didn't really want to be you know, entertained by that type of music, particularly at that time in my life. But I was telling the kids and my wife about that this morning and sort of felt under a little bit of conviction, so I had to kind of quickly correct myself to say this, that even though it may not have been the best singing, the best song that was ever there, Jenny Neumeister drove this passage of Scripture deep down into my soul. And for that, I'm really grateful. As immature as I was back then to, you know, kind of laugh is a little bit I had to run the sound system at our church and so I was up and away from everybody and I could kind of duck behind a curtain and not be seen up there and I did everything I could to bring that back onto pitch but there's just so much you can do with with sound equipment to bring things back there but Jenny Neumeister drill, drilled this this psalm 
down into my soul, so much so that I cannot read it without hearing her, her voice. And so uh, she is now uh, seeing the face of God, as we're going to learn here, that she is in the temple of the Lord. And I'm glad that her, uh, she's enjoying her rest, and I, I pray that her voice has been restored to its best glory possible. Uh, and I'm, I'm sure that she is a part of that heavenly choir that is singing in praise to our God. But yes, she did drill this down into my, into my very soul. Uh, let, let, we're going to break this down into various uh, verses, uh, of course, because it kind of breaks it apart, as laments often do, into various sections. Uh, verse 1 is where David sets the foundation for the rest of his psalm. It's sort of the, the thesis statement for the whole thing that we'll drill back over and over again as, we, as he expounds upon uh, his, his thesis that the Lord is his light and his salvation. Uh, ultimately, that's the truth that he's going to answer and return to repeatedly. Verses 2 and 3, they continue the theme brought out in verse 1 by explaining that uh, David's confidence is born out of the experience of his life and the faithfulness of his God. Uh, verses 4 through 6 uh, explain that this confidence results in praise from the one who, uh, in which his confidence is placed. Verses 7 through 12, then we see David arming himself for battle, petitioning the Lord and crying out to steal his resolve. And then finally, in verses 13 to 14, David brings it back together and ends, as so many laments do, with this, this sort of instructive praise, this um, uh, instruction to his own heart that is, is also kind of a window into his own personal praise life, where David is instructing himself according to the character of God that he has expounded in the, in the middle verses of this, this psalm. But let's begin where David begins by articulating the very specific aspect of the law that is to be his meditation throughout this psalm. We see this in verse 1, and it starts right off there, where it says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Now, we're told that this is a psalm of David, and you see that in the superscription of this passage. Uh, that likely means that he wrote it. It could just mean that it was of the time of David, and this is about that. But I think it's more likely to be the case that it's about David. And, and we know then that if it's about David, we know that uh, uh, who he's writing about, who, who he's writing about is the Lord. We know who the Lord is. This is not like lowercase l Lord. This is capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D Lord. This is Yahweh, the Jehovah God of the Old Testament. This is the one that, that called David to be a, a king when he was just merely a shepherd boy. Uh, this is the same uh, Lord that once told David, um, that, 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 uh, that, that David told Saul in 1 Samuel 17, had delivered him from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear and will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine Goliath. This is the same Lord that gave David that confidence to go and face Goliath. For David the Lord was over kings, and uh, when his hand of blessing was on a king, it was as it was for the time of Saul, that was to be sacredly respected and not to be challenged. That was the same Lord that instructed David. This same Lord is the Lord to David, what was uh, the one who had rebuked him for his sin with Bathsheba, and sent a plague when David disobeyed with taking the census. He remained his steadfast hope even when his son tried to take over his kingdom. Uh, this is the Lord. This is the Lord, the one who addressed David through the prophet Nathan. In 2 Samuel 7, verse 8, he said this, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you have been prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. This is the Lord that David's talking about. He says, And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. He says in verse 12 of 2 Samuel 7, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up for you offspring after you, you who, shall become, who shall come from your body, and I will establish your kingdom. 
In verse 16, he says this, this is the same Lord is speaking now. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure before me. Your throne will be established forever. This is the Lord that David had a personal relationship with. This is the personal Lord that David knew. Uh, but he goes on, and not only was he the Lord, he was what? He was his light. Uh, David had been in some dark caves during his life. We read about that throughout the, the story of David in the Old Testament, right? That he'd spent more nights than most kings would spend in their lifetimes inside of a cave and not inside of a royal palace. Uh, the Lord had been his light through the words of the prophets, shedding uh, probably a light that David may not have wanted shed upon his life so many times. But that was the light that David had talked about. Uh, he was the same light that we see uh, that Christ is described as throughout the scriptures as well later on. Uh, if this is the prologue to the gospel, it's good for us to remember what the gospel actually says about this light. Uh, we're told in Jesus or in John 8 that Jesus exclaims, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John told us more of this light in 1 John 1, 5. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. It'll be the same light that will illuminate all of heaven, as John explains in Revelation 21. The city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. This, for David and for us, is a light that illuminates everything within us, everything ahead of us, and with it drives out the darkness in which evil so often wants to easily hide. And, and more than that, uh, for David and for, for us, the Lord, well, it's, it's equivalent with light. And that's, that's significant, and especially for David and, and also for us. He says the Lord is what? The Lord is my light. This is not some foreign thing that is out there. It is not an impersonal light. This is a personal, not just personal, it's possessive to David. Yes, he's the light of the entire world. It applies for everyone. But for David, he was his own personal light. The Lord was his own personal light that illumined the path that was in front of him. It, it, David possessed this light, uh, that it was given to him by God. And more than just being his personal light... It was also his what? He says that he was my salvation. This is, again, personal to David. Physically, David had been saved repeatedly by God. Uh, spiritually, he was uh, his salvation. God was his salvation. He was the eternal source of comfort for David. Uh, he was the salvation that at one time filled him with joy, but later on he would write in the Psalms that, uh, and ask God to restore to him the joy of my salvation. Uh, this had been a salvation personal to David. Uh, he boldly claimed that God's saving work as my salvation. It was not to express anything but his firm conviction that he had done nothing to merit his salvation, that God had done everything. Uh, it was for David an external reality that the Lord had done the saving for David and not David for himself, by himself. The focus of, uh, or maybe the antecedent for this salvation was the Lord himself, and this David knew was personal to him. With this light and with this salvation, David is left with nothing to fear. Because if you have the Lord as your light and as your salvation, David is reminding you and telling us, each of us, whom shall I fear? It's like the ultimate big brother, you know? You can always go up against the face of the bully because you got the biggest guy standing behind you. I recognize exactly how trite and low that that sounds, but don't miss the fact that for David, the confidence that he has in this passage is born out of the fact that he has a personal, real God that will come to his defense, has, has done much for him, for the only purpose, not for David, but for the glory of God itself. 
But even in saying, whom shall I fear, the question sort of presupposes that there was an element of fear even within David. Now think about that for a moment. Here's David, the guy who slew a a lion, killed a bear, destroyed a giant, led multiple armies in battle. This guy was afraid. I mean, there's only a few of us in this room that have gone up one-on-one against a bear and come out winning. Maybe there's a few of us that have faced a lion and, and you know, run it off. But not very many of us have faced a giant or led an army in battle and slayed his tens of thousands and, and taken over kingdoms and, and kings. And yet David himself, at least we're, we're presupposing this based upon the question that is out there, has the ability to find himself in a position of being afraid. And he has to re- remind himself, hey, if the Lord is my light and if he is my salvation, of whom should I be afraid? What's, what's a bear going to do to me if I have the Lord as my light and my salvation? What is a lion but something that can... Uh, purr and scratch, but he could not ultimately cause me harm. What could a giant do to me if the Lord is my light and my salvation? There is something that's causing him to consider fearing, yet as if to argue with himself, he reminds himself that God is light and drives out that fear of darkness. He reminds himself that God has saved him before and with no help from David himself, and that he will do it again, and on this he can depend because of the nature of the Lord is to save those he loves. Again, here we see the psalmist talking to us about the nature, the character of the Lord that has been revealed to us already in the Torah, in the, in the law of the Lord, and his commentary exudes with this, this dependability of the Lord, that he will come to save those that he has promised to save. So what else could David conclude? What else could he possibly fear? Bears, lions, giants, armies, rebellions, All of those had come against David, yet David had been saved by the hand of the Lord. David had murdered, he had adulterated, he had arrogantly counted his human power, and though God had punished him justly for each one of those sins, he also remained faithful to his promise of David's kingship. Whom shall I fear? David concludes. Do you hear a truth that Paul also would later echo in Romans 8 when he asked, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? So tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors from, through him who loved us. As for David, this truth of God's sovereign grace in his life is revealed in the law of God, which was of such a monumental importance that he had to say it again. The Lord is my, this is my stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? It wasn't David's power that preserved his life, but it was God's, and David knew it. For David, the salvation gave him strength throughout his life, and he had nothing to fear except for one thing, God himself. Of whom shall I be afraid? It's as if he's asking the question, uh, he asks the question after answering, I, I won't be afraid of anything this world offers me. I will instead, I will fear God. Now, before we get further into that, there, there seems to be a little bit of context for David's claim here. Uh, there's an immediate and a, a personal fear. Look at verses 2 and 3. When, when evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. Just let's look through that. We see different um, uh, villains in this part of, of the, 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 the lament. We have evildoers that are engaged in some form of assailing, right? They, they've come to do something like eat up my flesh. I don't know if that's uh, literal eating up of the flesh. I doubt it. I think it's more like they're just going to consume him by their battles. Adversaries and foes. We've got evildoers, adversaries, foes. 
Uh, they're going to stumble and fall later on, thankfully, because of the mighty hand of the Lord. We've got an army encamped against him, uh, and his hearts are not fair. And then we've got a war that's rising. We've got at least five different villains that in two verses David points to as the things that, that could cause him to be afraid. Uh, and there's a very real sense that this is sort of this reminder of the passage in John 18 where Judas brings an army against Christ to arrest him. And we read this, we say, it says this, Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to him, I am he. Judas, who had betrayed him, was standing with them. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. That's the God that David knew was his personal salvation, his personal light. David knew that the great I am was present and then no enemy, no villain could stand before him. He knew that at some point for everyone, enemies and friends, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Christ is the Lord. No, for David, the enemies could not harm him. He would not stumble or be overtaken by the pursuing enemy. They would fall and at the mere mention of I am of Jehovah, of Yahweh. David knew the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Yet still David was surrounded by enemies and a a normal person would be in great fear. I think all of us would be in great fear if we had an army encamped against us, right? But not David. David was confident because of the surroundings of his enemy in the face of being surrounded by his enemies. And and perhaps he was recalling the story of Elijah in 2 Kings uh, chapter 6 where you remember the story where Elisha's servant fears the king of Syria as he surrounds uh, Dothan and lays siege to the town of Dothan. Uh, But then uh, Elisha prays and God opens the eyes of his servant to reveal this heavenly army that's, it says it's it's spread out across the mountain full of horses and chariots of fire. And in that moment, the servant of the Lord, or the servant to Elisha rather, recognizes that the, the, the the power dynamic has changed here, right? Syria is no longer such a threat when you've got an entire mountain filled with horses and chariots of fire. It's the same Lord that controlled those horses and chariots that the Lord that, that David is pointing to here and, and allows David to say, of whom shall I be afraid? Our confidence is in Christ. Our fear of Christ allows us to say, of whom shall I be afraid? Spurgeon, if I haven't, I didn't point this out last week, but there is a wonderful commentary that's available to you online called "The Treasury of David." It's, it's a commentary on the Psalms written by Charles Spurgeon. Just Google "The Treasury of David" if you ever want to just plant yourself deeply inside of the Psalms. Uh, it is a wonderful resource to you. Thankfully, it's it's provided to you free on the internet these days. You can probably buy it in a hardback copy if you still do those kinds of things. Uh, But it's a wonderful commentary on the Psalms. Spurgeon writes this on this verse. He says, This third verse is the comfortable and logical inference from the second. Confidence is the child of experience. Have you been delivered out of great perils? Then set up your ensign and wait at your witch fire. And I think it's supposed to be watch fire, actually. Wait at your watch fire and let the enemy do his worst. Confidence is the child of experience. Whom shall I fear? Well, not man, not angels, not demons, not trials, troubles, enemies, armies. God is sovereign over all of these things. Not death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, as Paul reminds us in Romans 8. Those things, all of those things, are not capable of separating us from what Paul says later on, from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Instead, we ought to redefine fear from 
this unpleasant emotion that someone or something is about to cause us uh, imminent harm. Instead, we ought to define fear as this abiding confidence in the sovereign ruler of the universe. Uh, whom shall I fear? Well, Deuteronomy 5.29 tells us. It says this, that the right person to fear is, oh, that they had such a mind as this always, to fear me and to keep all my commandments, that it might go well with them and with their descendants forever. Whom shall I fear? Well, look to Deuteronomy 6, where mom and dad, you're given this instruction. Now this is the commandment, the statutes, and the rules that the Lord your God commanded to each of you, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son, and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes. And we're told to teach that to our children as we walk along the way. That's what we're supposed to be uh, instilling the fear of God, in <laughs> the literal fear of God, in the lives of our children. Should we fear man? Well, I mean, I think it's human to fear man and what the man can do to you, but no, we ought to instead fear God and serve him as we're instructed to do in Deuteronomy over and over again. Fear the armies of the earth and governments. I mean, it's reasonable as humans to, to land ourselves in that level of fear, sure, but we're supposed to actually fear the Lord for that is the beginning of knowledge and wisdom and understanding. That's what Proverbs tells us. That is the level of fear that we're supposed to be having. Instead of having the right fear of God, it is, uh, instead of having the right fear of God is my duty, says the teacher in Ecclesiastes 12, 13. He says this, fear God and keep his commandment, for this is the whole duty of man. When we redefine the fear from this thing that is going to cause us imminent harm to the sovereign ruler of the universe, our fear shifts from uh, fear to confidence, doesn't it? Uh, my duty to fear God, we're told in the New Testament, comes between Peter's command in 2 Peter 2 that I love the brotherhood and honor those who rule over me. We're to fear God. I, I will fear him now, for John tells me it will be part of my worship in eternity. In Revelation 19, he says, And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, great and small. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? We fear the Lord. Now, having announced the why, uh, the why question of his lament, David then begins to turn to praise in Psalm uh, 27, verses 4 through 6. One thing I've asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy, and I will sing and make melody to the Lord. David realizes that the greatest place, the place for his greatest safety, is found in the house of the Lord. Uh, and for David, he, he wishes to make this the, the one thing, his primary focus, his individual aim, uh, the, prime, uh, the one thing that he wants to, to, to seek over, over everything. Uh, a divided man is a distracted one, and, and a divided uh, attention uh, leads to, to troubles. But for David, he instructs his heart to lay aside all the other distractions that are out there, to pursue the greatest of desires, to, to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of his life. That's what he, he wants his focus to be on, and, and not merely to take up residence or to just pass through the house of the Lord, but David says he wishes to, to dwell within the house of the Lord. That, that's, that's living there, that is sitting there, that is uh, soaking it all in. Uh, it's staying there, not wanting to go anywhere else, but to, to take up residence, to, to live there, and to take everything in that might be possible to take in within the house of the Lord. He says he wishes to also gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. 
Albert Barnes, who, who's written a wonderful commentary on the scriptures, he says this, In the tabernacle and in the temple there was a manifestation of the character of God not seen elsewhere. The whole worship was adapted to set forth his greatness, his glory, and his grace. Great truths were brought before the mind, fitted for, to elevate, to comfort, and to sanctify the soul. And it was in the contemplation of those truths that the psalmist sought to elevate and purify his own mind and to sustain himself in troubles in the troubles and perplexities of life. Spurgeon, also writing back in that treasury of David, he says this, We must not enter the assemblies of the saints in order to see and be seen, or merely to hear the minister. We must repair to the gatherings of the righteous, intent upon the gracious object of learning more of the loving Father, more of the glorified Jesus, more of the mysterious Spirit, in order that we may the more lovingly admire and the more reverently adore our glorious God. Even as we're surrounded by evildoers, by adversaries, and by foes, God has given his people the church. Yes, David's talking about the future dwelling of the temple, but he's also dwelling, or talking about dwelling in the current temple. And for us, that is also the current church. God has given his people the church as this, this respite from the battles of the world around us. In Christ's church, do we find a sanctuary from the battles that are facing us? We, we don't have to... Uh, wear our armor so fittedly here. We can sort of let them at our sides for now. Uh, we, we also find in the church weary pilgrims that are also there that, that we can encourage and that can uh, draw courage from ourselves, from those that are waging their own battles as well. And above all, we find the loving Father, the glorified Jesus, the mysterious Spirit, as Spurgeon put it, upon whom we may recast our focus and not merely look upon, but David says to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. But man, I'm going to talk to you for a second. When we read things like this in the scriptures that we say gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, we have trouble with this, right? Uh, to gaze upon something that is beautiful is not common to the Y chromosome. Uh, we may be impressed by something. If we are gazing upon beauty, it is usually gazing upon the beauty of our wives, and that's kind of where we relinquish it to. But we ought to adopt this uh, from the greatest warrior that has ever lived in the scriptures of David. He sat down to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. Uh, and, and if we have to instruct even our chromosomes that are labeled with the Y to gaze upon something that is beautiful, David says we should do it. Gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, upon all of his character. Uh, and that is found within, we're instructed upon that at least, here in, in, in God's house, in, in the church. We, we don't enter the house of the Lord simply to draw strength from gazing upon the beauty of the Lord, but there we also receive our orders. Uh, we inquire of the Lord in his temple, it says. Uh, in the temple or the tabernacle, the king would go and seek the wisdom of the Lord. Uh, and indeed, all Israel would gather at the door of the tabernacle at momentous and challenging times to seek and receive wisdom from God, that they would get direction from the God of their salvation. And in the, the desert, the, the tabernacle would literally go ahead of the rest of the column. They would follow that pillar of smoke or the pillar of fire across the desert. Uh, for, for God's people also, uh, that, that was what they ordered their entire lives around. In the tabernacle in the desert, the whole camp was centered around the actual tabernacle. And for the temple, that was the center of the cultural and Jewish life in the, the Old Testament times. And so the temple and the tabernacle, these were important things to the people of Israel and for the king also to, to go there. Spurgeon says this, We must inquire as to the will of God and how we may do it, as to our interest in the heavenly city and how we may be more assured of it. We shall not need to make inquiries in heaven, for there we shall know even as we are known. But meanwhile, 
we should sit at Jesus' feet and awaken all our faculties to learn of him. In other words, we don't need to look at professors or presidents, philosophers for, for wisdom or to gain some sort of understanding. Here is where we gather. Here in this body is where we gather to find salvation, to seek refuge from the enemies that pursue us. Here we can claim sanctuary for safety when we are accused by the enemy of our souls. Uh, here we gain great comfort by looking at the faces beside us. We stand shoulder to shoulder in worship as if in lines that are formed for battle to go out and wage that battle. Uh, in, in this place, and there's no other place like it on the face of the earth, we can sing God's praises more loudly, more uproariously, more boldly, and in that not only have our, our minds but our very souls adjusted to the great glory of our God. Here we come to receive the marching orders that we have so that when we go out of this place, we can say with the psalmist, Whom shall I fear? Whom shall I be afraid of? And we can answer that question resoundingly. No one. We need not fear anyone. Rather than fear when surrounded by enemies, our confidence is in the Christ that we meet on a Sunday morning here. Uh, our, our, uh, our confidence in Christ ought to be so great that we cannot help but have as our sole desire to gaze upon his beauty, to sit at his feet and await his wisdom, his solution, and indeed his salvation. And nowhere is that more readily manifested than in his church. The Lord is my light and my salvation of whom shall I fear? This informs David's confidence, and it does to us as well. Uh, in verse 5, David confesses the source of his confidence. It's not in himself. It says what? Look at the pronouns there. He will hide me out of the sight of his enemies, blinding them with a great light. He will conceal me, camouflage from all those who would pursue him. He will lift me up as an, in victory over his enemies, out of the reach of those who would seek to harm him. Uh, this makes David turn to praise in verse 6. We bring nothing to the table except that we are pursued, chased, hated, and surrounded by our enemies. Uh, we need, God does all the protecting, he does all the saving, and he does all the defeating. How then can we not say with David, my head is lifted up. I'm encouraged, he's saying. My confidence is restored, not because of me and the, the battles that I have fought, but because of the one who fought for me. Of whom shall I be afraid? Well, this turns for David to sacrifices of praise and song. He can't help but but sing praises. This is no time for staying quiet. Indeed, he cannot. David is overflowing in joy and in confidence he has in Christ. Uh, he has to sing, and not just to sing, but he says there to, to make melody to the Lord. It's an organized song, one that he's taken intention to arrange, to sing well to, to, to make it sound nicely. It's a melodious tune that he's singing to the Lord. His praise is such that he's, he wants to spend time on giving this praise that it is giving over to the Lord. And when we realize the utter completeness we have in Christ, when we understand how we bring nothing to our salvation, when we realize how without Christ I am nothing, that we are a people who have walked in darkness and in Christ have seen a great light, that there is no work of righteousness that we have done, but by grace we have been saved through faith, that, that all of our righteousness is as filthy rags, then, and only then, we cannot help but be reduced to a great satisfaction and joy in Christ, turning our joy into worship, ascribing glory to our great God. And so we can sing in confident worship, just like Jenny Neumeister did. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? For David, this was not just uh, um, the, the approach of his enemies and considering all these things. For David, even in this time of worship, it seems to be that his confidence is being accused. The reality begins to set in. His weaknesses are recognized. Even when he walks out of the temple, 
his enemies still happen to be there, right? So in verses 7 through 12, I won't take the time to read through that, but it's as if David is sort of loading his ammunition and checking the, the, the various parts of his armor as he prepares to confidently enter back into the battle. Uh, having been in the temple, he's now going back out, but he's, he's come out much more confident uh, than he went in. In verse 7, he petitions that God will be within earshot, answering him when he cries. In verses 8 through 9, he is almost like a toddler who demands his father always watch him, not just to get his attention, but to draw the confidence that he needs that comes from knowing that my father sees me and will not allow harm to come to me. In verse 10, he's willing to see all the rest leave him except for God. And this is, this is, very, uh, this is almost uh, uh, frightening or sad. I can't exactly put the right bittersweetness to this whole thing. But it says that my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Even his family departs him. And again, listen to Spurgeon. These dear relations will be the last to desert me. But if the milk of human kindness should dry up even from their breasts, there is a father who never forgets. Some of the greatest of the saints have been cast out by their families and persecuted for righteousness' sake. The Lord will espouse my cause, will uplift me from my woes, will carry me in his arms, will elevate me above my enemies, will at last receive me to his eternal dwelling place. Even if everybody else forsakes me, even if my mom and dad abandon me, the Lord will not abandon us. The Lord is our salvation. Mommy and daddy are not. The Lord is our salvation. In verse 11, we hear again the words of Proverbs 3, where we are promised that God will make our path straight if we never forget his teaching and remember to acknowledge God in all our ways, not to depend upon ourselves for our own salvation. In verse 12, David remembers what happened to Saul when God removed his hand of protection. The Lord, David reminds himself, is my salvation. Of whom shall I be afraid? Of whom shall I fear? And then finally, we get into the last part of uh, verses 13 and 14 where we come to the whole point of the, the scriptures. We've got the thesis point from verse 1, that the Lord is my light and my salvation, of whom shall I be afraid? And now, having recounted the character of God and learned much about what God has done in our lives, and David instructing his own heart about these things, uh, the, uh, the character of God, uh, articulating each one of those uh, elements of his character, he comes to the final part, the final praise of the lament, which doesn't read like a praise song, per se, like we might hear on a Sunday morning or at a... Uh, where we might sing these types of kind of saccharine praises that are sometimes out there. Instead, this is a a real heartfelt praise. This is a a praise built out of theology that is meant to instruct our hearts as much as it is to to sing the praises to God himself. let's, Let's read them together, verses 13 and 14. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. I love the resolve that comes in those first two words, I believe. After all these things, having surveyed the enemies and having talked about parents even abandoning you and and all the things, the defeats and the battles and the, the, the wars that have been fought, I believe still, this is what I believe, that I shall look upon the goodness. There, there's no equivocation here. I, I, I believe it. There, there's no room for doubt in that phrase. Uh, there, there's no like, no, maybe something will happen in the future and this will all go away. No, I shall look upon, this is mandatory language. I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord. It's almost as if David, who's been done from wrestling with God, turns his attention to his own reflection in the mirror, looks himself in the eye and steals his resolve. I believe I shall look upon the uh, goodness of the Lord. I believe, he says, that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord. Despite pursuit, enemies, harm, David has assurance of salvation. 
David is, David's confidence in this salvation is assured. So what about us? Oh, we're quick to doubt. We rely too quickly on ourselves. We admit our belief at times without really believing it. Have you doubted your salvation? Well, remind yourself what you believe. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Have you doubted recently your safety? The Lord, the Lord is the stronghold of my life. Do you find yourself fearing temptation? Well, whom shall I fear? Of whom shall I be afraid? Be like David to resolve yourself to believe. Write it down. Say it to yourself. Don't let yourself forget this great truth. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Verse 14 reminds David, David reminds himself to wait for the Lord. I love this bookends of that verse. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. You know, that, that, that sort of human uh, insecurity is just right there under the surface for David. You know, he's got this great confidence. I believe that I shall look upon the face of the Lord. Wait for the Lord. Do all these things. Wait for the Lord. I, I don't know if that's just David being, uh, you know, what they call a quick start, someone who sees the end and wants to get to it as fast as they can. Uh, someone that is just eager to keep moving. His motor's always going. He, now he's got this confidence. He can't wait to get going. I don't know. I, I don't know if that's what that is. But there's a level of impatience that's right there for David. But he's got to remind his heart to wait for the Lord. And, and so we ought to receive this instruction as well. We should be patient. The Lord will provide for us. We need to be consoled. God gives provision at the perfect moment. We can be confident that God will act for his glory and his good according to his timing. And so for us, and this is really difficult for type A's in the room, wait. Just wait. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and courageous. Yes, this is a battle that we can't wimp out on. Others will leave you. Friends will forsake you. Be strong and courageous. The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Wait for the Lord. Don't do it yourself. Wait for the Lord to do it. Tell your heart to wait for the Lord. All right, Spurgeon, one more time. And I promise this is the last time I'll quote Spurgeon this, this, uh, in this lesson. There will be others. He says this, wait, wait at his door with prayer. Wait at his foot with humility. Wait at his table with service. Wait at his window with expectancy. Courage we shall need, and for the exercise of it we have as much reason as necessity if we are soldiers of King Jesus. What strength is this which God himself gives to the heart? Well, read the book of martyrs and see its glorious deeds of prowess. Go to God, rather, and get such power thyself. Wait for the Lord. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Wait for the Lord as we uh, uh, wait to see his confidence coming to us. Bishop Thomas Ken, who was a great English reformer, um, I doubt many of us know who Thomas Ken is. He's not in that kind of pantheon of great reformers that we tend to study. You will know him, though, because he wrote a great song that you sing routinely. It's set to the tune of Old 100. It's the, the doxology, as we call it, or um, what's, um, praise, praise God, the Father, you know, that, that song. That, when, you, when you teach and you don't write these things down, you, you run the risk of not actually being able to say the thing you want to say. Yes, that one. He wrote that song, all right? But he also wrote a bunch of other poetry that has been lost mostly to history. So I'm going to bring Bowen back. He says this. He says, Stand but your ground, your ghostly foes will fly. Hell trembles at a heaven-directed eye. Choose rather to defend than to assail. Self-confidence will in the conflict fail. 
When you are challenged, you my dangers meet. You, you by dangers meet. True courage is a fixed, not sudden heat. Is always humble, lives in self-distrust, and will itself in no danger thrust. Devote yourself to God, and you will find God fights the battles of a will resigned. Love Jesus. Love will no base fear endure. Love Jesus, and of conquest rest secure. That's my charge to you today as well. Wait for the Lord. The Lord is your salvation. The Lord is your light. Of whom shall I fear? Let's pray. Thanks, Father, for this lesson, for this truth that is embedded in your scriptures, that you are our salvation, uh, that you save us from the very hands of our enemies. You hide us when we need to be hidden. You lift us up when we need to be raised. Uh, You put us inside of your tent and cause us to bring you praise. And so, Father, may we have as our one true devotion, our one true passion, undivided from all the other things that, that clamor for our attention. May our one focus be that we wish to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, to dwell in his sanctuary, to dwell in his temple. May we receive our orders, our lessons, and our uh, encouragement from being in the house that you have built and given to your people to, to worship in. And then let us not get ahead of ourselves, but may we be reminded that you are our salvation and we are not. And that we are to wait, that we are to wait for the Lord. That you have conquered all things, that there is nothing that can separate us from the love for those who are in Christ Jesus. You are our salvation. You are our guide. There is nothing that can separate us from you. And so, Father, teach our hearts to wait, wait patiently. Even as we face enemies encamped around us that are surrounding us, that are here to even eat our very flesh, you are our God. And like the reformers who burned at the stake, their confidence was not in themselves to bear through the pain, but their confidence was uh, in the God who would save them. And so, Father, let us also have similar confidence that uh, we can rest in you, the one who has seen fit throughout eternity past and into eternity future, to bring much glory to yourself by the salvation of your people, not in works of righteousness that we have done, but by your grace have you saved us. And for that, Father, we rejoice, knowing that you are our salvation. And if, if this world depended upon us to save it or ourselves, this would be a very bad outcome. But it does not. You have saved us. You superintend all things. And for that, Father, we praise you just like the psalmist does, that you are our light and our salvation. And given that fact that is true in the time of David all the way through the time to right now, that every reformer, that every believer throughout history has the same confidence as we have in this moment, that if you are our light and our salvation, whom then shall we fear? So cast out fear and anxiety today, Father, in our hearts. Focus it again today upon the beauty of our Lord and Savior as we approach the scriptures. May we receive your instruction, correction, and um, uh, training in righteousness that you provide to us through these scriptures. And may we go forward confident in the, the actions and behavior that you have called us to engage. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.